China. 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 You know, regardless of whichever side of the spectrum you belong to, here is one hard fact no one can dispute. Capitalism has single-handedly lifted more people out of poverty than any other economic methodology ever. Period. And perhaps the most widespread example of that is China. From being a hunger-stricken, impoverished, famine-ridden communist country to witnessing the most pervasive eradication of poverty in human history after embracing the market in just 40 years, China is now very well on its way to becoming the biggest economy in the world. Not even that, like at about $17 trillion, the second largest economy globally has a very fascinating story to tell. So in today's episode, we go back half a century to a war-torn, ravaged China, which was then again followed by another 20 years of stagnant economic growth, terrible genocidal policies in fact, and an overall collapsing economy. And then how the miracle struck and how exactly communist China ended up weaponizing capitalism with a layer of tyranny to become one of the miracle economies of the 20th century. Roll the intro. Cash me if you can. Your gateway into the world of financial freedom. Okay, first, we are starting from the communist takeover. So the year is 1949, and the Chinese Civil War is over. Mao Zedong is named the chairman of the People's Republic of China, and he faces a few key problems. There is chronic food shortage and virtually no industry at all. The roads are damaged, highways are non-existent, dams and dikes are broken, railways do not function. The economy is terrible, obviously. And... Being the utopian communist leader that he is, Mao sets himself on a mission to fix this. So, in step one, what he does is, he collectivizes, like collects all the land owned by the people to apparently redistribute it among their people, the citizens or the people in the People's Republic of China. And in the due process, ends up killing hundreds of thousands and casually calls it the land reform movement. The campaign involved the mass murder of landlords by tenants and land redistribution to the peasantry. The estimated number of casualties of the movement ranges from hundreds of thousands to even millions if you count sources. In terms of the CCP's evaluation, Zhao Enlai estimated that 830,000 had been killed in total and according to official documents which were later declassified, Mao Zedong's estimates were up to 2 to 3 million people. Those killed were targeted based on their social class rather than their ethnicity and neologist classicide is used to describe the killings. Class-motivated mass murder continued throughout the 30 years of social and economic transformation in Maoist China. And by the end of the reforms, the landlord class had been eliminated mainly from mainland China or they fled to Taiwan. And by 1953, land reform in most parts of Mainland China was completed, except in Tibet, Xinjiang, and Xuchan. Okay, since our topic is the economic development of China and not Mao's terrible policies, I don't want to get carried away, but still, obviously, before I move on, I have to talk about the infamous 
great leap forward from 1960 to 1962 an estimated 30 million people died of starvation in china more than any single famine in recorded human history and most tragically this disaster was largely preventable mao zedong's great leap forward was supposed to transform china into a communist paradise and mao launched a radical campaign to outproduce great britain the mother of the industrial revolution and achieve communism before the soviet union fanatic efforts to meet the unrealistic goals led to widespread fraud and intimidation resulting in the starvation of 1 in 20 chinese after the korean war china focused on achieving socialism through urban industrialization and rural collectivization so the chinese modeled their approach on the soviet union's five year plans which caused 6 to 8 million people to starve in the first year itself China's first 5-year plan was initially successful due to large Soviet investment in state-owned factories that produced, you know, machinery, chemical fertilizers, etc. But after the regime confiscated land from landlords, communication pooled land and resources for efficiency, and vast communal fields were more mechanized than millions of small family plots. So the end goal of this very collectivization was communism and in their terms shared prosperity. but that did not pan out first 10 families voluntarily formed mutual aid teams called mat and in this early stage of socialism each family agreed to share labor tools and jot animals while retaining ownership this relationship had historically existed between farming communities but was now formalized by contract next low level apcs were formed so an apc had 50 households that each contributed resources including land families kept their land and were compensated for land and labor and these are reasonable steps towards collectivization proved effective mao moved to the next more controversial phase by combining five low level cooperatives into 250 household cooperatives land animals tools and other resources became cooperative property and labor was the only compensation as collectivization intensified problems arose quantity triumphed quality and quotas as we talked about if you remember in the soviet union episode quotas led to poor products and rural people resisted property seizures domestic and international events strengthened mao's resolve to implement the second five year plan the great leap forward and in this final stage of collectivization communes with 5500 households each were formed agriculture industry governance education and healthcare would be self sufficient and in the spirit of wild optimism Most rural Chinese threw themselves wholeheartedly into the Great Leap. Farmers worked all day and sometimes into the night, a practice called casting the moon and stars while shouting slogans. Men didn't go home at night, sleeping in makeshift sheds in fields with other commune members. A chef could feed the entire commune from big pots in the area to save time. This system was more efficient than traditional family meals and allowed mothers to work alongside men. Families placed infants in communal nurseries. and the elderly and infirm in happiness homes to increase equality free up laborers and maximize production steel was the accurate indicator of development not food and imagine if china's farmers contributed to industrial action farmers built millions of backyard furnaces and split their time between tending crops and smelting steel during the great leap gathering fuel for all these furnaces destroyed at least 10% of china's forests while the woods became scarce peasants burned their doors furniture and even coffins yes everyone contributed iron tools utensils works door knobs shovels you know window frames and other everyday items 
while children scoured the ground for iron nails and scarves. Farmers didn't know how to smell steel because these skills were considered bourgeois and rightist. Unsurprisingly, the campaign turned valuable items into railroad yard clogging pig iron. Ma predicted that by the end of the Great Leap Forward in 1962, China would produce 100 million tons of steel, surpassing the US. It's impossible to double in five years. When officials accepted and publicized inflated production figures, the Great Leap Forward seemed successful. The New China News Agency carried stories and photos of fields so dense they could support children and supersize fruits and vegetables, like a 132-pound pumpkin and a giant radish. But survivors recall eating neglected crops, kitchen waste dumped in leftovers, and so on. The People's Daily debated how China should deal with its new surplus and, in the end, the state increased grain exports, replaced some food crops with cash crops like the cotton, like cotton or tea, and raised commune tax rates from 20 to 28%. Although, grain production fell from 30% in 1958 to 1960. And to put that into perspective, while I sum this up, 10 million people died in the Holocaust. 30 million in the Great Leap Forward. It's so ironic how Mao gets away with killing twice as many people as Hitler, but you can still type his name around Instagram freely and not get banned. Anyway, now prosperity begins. So Mao died, and the next chairman in line was Deng Xiaoping. He did a lot of questionable stuff. But what we want to focus on here is the factor that changed China forever. The open-door policy. The beginnings of the infamous communist with Chinese characteristics. Basically capitalism, we'll see. So in 1978, Deng visited a lot of European nations such as Sweden, Denmark, West Germany. And to sum it up, he was in awe. He reportedly came back and acknowledged to his party members that whatever he was told to believe was a charade. He and the entirety of the Chinese population were told that capitalist countries are miserable places to live, they exploit their workers, do not provide housing, you know the jargon. Deng was shocked, mainly because he got to visit West Germany, which was also after the Sino-Soviet split, hence the relationship between China and the USSR was bitter. And he took a moment to fathom that China was so far behind both in science and economy-wise that he sought to change this regardless of what it takes. Actually, that has always been his intention since his early days, until he was purged by Mao for criticizing him and sent to the countryside. His intention was to make China a prosperous nation, although be it holding his power in an authoritative fashion. So, China's reform and the open-door policy began with the adoption of a new economic development strategy at the third plenary session of the 11th Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party in the late 1978. The Chinese government began to pursue an open-door policy in which it adopted a stance to achieve economic growth through the active introduction of foreign capital and technology while also somehow maintaining its commitment to socialism. The stated goal of this policy shift appears to rebuild the country's economy and society after the disaster that Mao's Cultural Revolution was. And the policy shift seems to have been prompted by the realization that ordinary Chinese incomes were so low in comparison to incomes in other Asian economies that the Chinese state and communist regime's future would be jeopardized until something was done to raise people's living standards to economic growth. The government 
established something called special economic zones open coastal cities economic and technology development zones delta open zones open peninsula zones open border cities and high tech industry development zones as areas for foreign investment the creation of these zones resulted in massive inflows of foreign investment primarily from hong kong and taiwanese companies and china promoted its socialist market economy concept at the same time through the changes ushered in an entrepreneurial renaissance in china resulting in many entrepreneurs and venture firms so the open door policies regional differentiation was manifested in creating special economic zones with relatively small areas that were heavily oriented to a trading with the outside world the four special economic zones of shenzhen zuhai shanto and guangdong and xiamen in fujian province were established in august 1918 shenzhen being the largest and these zones were located in economically depressed areas an economic harm caused by a failure of the open door policy was intended as an experiment and would be limited so the following characteristics were found in special economic zones firstly foreign capital were to determine economic development economic activities were to be conducted according to market economic principles foreign companies were given more leeway and had a more favorable operating environment than other parts of china and governments in special economic zones had the same administrative powers in foreign trade matters as provincial governments now the special economic zones were strictly isolated from the rest of the economy in terms of economic activity to avoid any negative spillover effects on the rest of china and this meant that the chinese foreign companies product markets were restricted to export oriented manufacturing and services the compulsory export of products manufactured in special economic zones was also decreased simultaneously separation was maintained in the foreign exchange market in the special economic zones obligations to generate the foreign currency they required on their own various measures aimed at limiting population migration also resulted in separating special economic zones from domestic chinese labor markets but despite these limitations the special economic zones played a significant role in attracting foreign investment these encouraging results also meant that the initial concern about the open door policies failure faded over time the chinese government then decided to broaden the scope of its open door policy both in terms of scope and geography and from a geographical standpoint this began in 1984 when Shanghai, Tianjin and 12 other Chinese ports were designated as open cities. In these open cities, foreign investors were given favorable environmental conditions and city governments were given extensive decision-making powers over foreign trade activities. After 1985, China's open-door economic policy was gradually extended to the country's interior. The opening of 11 provincial capital cities in China's interior was the most decorated step. So the goal became to strengthen China's economy through participation in the global economy and direct foreign investment the political and ideological recognition of privately owned enterprise forms and thus non-state ownership of the means of production was a basic initial requirement for realizing the goal of attracting foreign capital and these according to international standards appealed to foreign investors furthermore clear and long lasting regulations governing these companies interactions with the government were required to provide the companies with a solid decision making foundation and protect them from arbitrary intervention by government institutions and again to avoid any negative effects on the development of the domestic economy as was feared at the start of the reform phase institutional safeguards were needed to 
keep the open areas and the domestic areas as separate as possible. Furthermore, the companies needed to be given more decision-making authority over capital and labor sourcing. Fair laws and ordinances were needed to clarify the relationship between the Chinese foreign companies and state agencies and give these companies formal legal recognition. So the company law for Chinese foreign joint ventures involving foreign investor participation was passed for the first time on 1st July 1979. However, this law included a provision limiting foreign participation to 49% at first, requiring the company manager to be of Chinese nationality. But regarding fiscal policy, it became necessary to establish a special taxation system for companies with foreign shareholders, as the traditional method of allocating profits was unsuitable for these businesses. In the real-world dealings of state agencies with these companies, formal regulations had to be implemented. And as a result, the methods of the party and the state bureaucracies had to be adapted to the principles and modes of the behavior of the market economy. The intensified competition between the planned and the market economy sectors was aided by the Chinese leadership's decision to broaden the open-door policy in response to its success of the open-door policy. And at the same time, political and ideological prejudices against foreigner-influenced businesses were gradually dispelled. So the expansion of the open-door policy required foreign companies to make larger commitments in China at first. And this requirement would have been met both regionally and sectorally, as evidenced by the quantitative increase in the significance of Chinese foreign joint ventures. Simultaneously, competition between private sectors and public sectors forms of business emerged, and for various reasons, state-owned enterprises were the losers in this competition. And as a result, the Chinese government was forced to choose between drastically altering the paths and methods of operations of the state enterprises and guiding them towards market structures or ending its open-door policy. But assuming the economic cost-benefit considerations, increasing population prosperity and thus securing the leadership's own position of power, the decision had to favor the first opinion. If the Chinese leadership had wanted to, it could have slowed or stopped the decline of the state enterprises. But inflows of foreign capital, technology and management allowed China to transform its vast labor resources and space into rapid economic growth, resulting in its current shape now. And now we come to modern-day China. A massive economy built at the expense of its citizens' freedom. We'll see that. According to the World Bank, China has lifted over 850 million people out of poverty and the country is on track to eliminate absolute poverty by 2025. And that is a feat very few countries can achieve. At the same time, education levels have risen dramatically. And according to Standard Chartered, around 27% of China's workforce will have a university education by 2030, similar to Germany today. The thing is, China is the world's manufacturing hub. And it greatly benefits from it. In fact, that is why all manufacturing from rich Western countries moved to China in the late 20th century to get the same output at a lower cost because labor in those very Western countries is very costly. But there are also a lot more other factors like China's economy is driven by manufacturing, services and agriculture. China is the world's largest manufacturer in terms of output and soon after joining the World Trade Organization in 2001, it earned the moniker World Factory. Foreign firms and investors rushed 
to do business in the world's most populous country in the new millennium, enticed by cheap labor, China's commitment to opening up its economy and low tariff access to Western markets, all thanks to W2 entry. China has since become a world leader in manufacturing steel, automobile parts, chemicals, electronics, and robotics, thanks to government investment. So China's economy thrives as a manufacturing powerhouse, and its products are everywhere we know it. China earned the nickname the world's factory for its robust business ecosystem. Lack of regulatory compliance, low taxes and duties, competitive currency practices, and low labor costs. China also has 1.39 billion people, making it one of the world's most populous countries. And because of the supply of workers exceeds the demand of low-paid workers, wages remain low according to the law of supply and demand. Furthermore, until the late 20th century, most Chinese were rural and lower middle class were poor, with internal migration reversing the country's rural-urban distribution. These newcomers to industrial cities were prepared to work multiple shifts for low pay. Child labor and minimum wage laws, which are more likely observed in the West, were not followed by China, at least not strictly. But these situations are now changing, I would hope so, as more provinces report raising their minimum wage in response to raising living costs. But still, we all know that doesn't help really. I made an episode on that, you can check it out. Anyway, so the point here is, China is China today because of its ability to manufacture things at a much cheaper rate. Companies like Apple take advantage of China's supply chain inefficiencies to keep costs low and margins high. Multiple component suppliers and manufacturers are located near Foxconn Technology Group, which is a Taiwan-based electronics manufacturer, and taking the components to the US to assemble the final product is a cost prohibitive for many companies. Manufacturers in the West are also expected to follow specific base guidelines regarding child labor, forced labor, health and safety standards, wage laws, and environmental protection. But most of these laws are not followed by Chinese factories. Chinese factories have a history of using child labor, working long shifts, and not providing workers with compensation insurance. So much in the name of communism. Some factories even have policies where workers are only paid once a year to prevent them from quitting before the end of the year. Faced with mounting criticism, China's government claims to be implementing reforms to protect workers' rights and provide more equitable compensation. However, many industries have low compliance with the rules and changes have been very slow. Furthermore, environmental laws are routinely disregarded, allowing Chinese factories to save money on waste management. Finally, there are two less good business practices and more legal greedy practices that I want to talk about. To begin with, there is currency manipulation. By pegging the value of its currency, the renminbi, to the dollar, China directly impacts the US dollar. China's central bank employs a modified version of the standard fixed rate exchange, which differs from the floating exchange rate issued by the US and many other countries. I explained this one in my currency episode a long ago, but I'll repeat it here. When countries buy and sell goods abroad, the relative value of currencies can make a big difference. So when the dollar is strong, let's say, Americans have more purchasing power over other countries, but American exports are also more expensive for other countries to buy. But when the dollar falls in value, it buys fewer imported goods, but makes American exports more affordable to foreign buyers, boosting exports. Some countries manipulate the system by depreciating their currencies to boost exports, and they include China, which has historically kept the value of its currency low to accelerate its economic development. This, along with other policies, aided China's development of a manufacturing sector that employs tens of millions of people and serves as a global factory. 
currency manipulation occurs when governments attempt to artificially manipulate the exchange rate to gain an unfair trade advantage. That's all. So by buying dollars in the forex market, China Central Bank can artificially weaken the yuan, making Chinese goods more affordable and competitive on the international market. And some intervention by central banks is permitted to reduce wide fluctuation in the exchange rate, but excessive and undeclared intervention are considered unfair. The second well-known, little-discussed topic is how China ironically and conveniently outsources its own research and development to other Western countries and reaps the benefits in terms of the finished product. This is true not only in technology and electronics, but also in far more expensive fields like medicine, where R&D costs are much higher. This effectively prevents the Chinese economy from depleting resources to develop while, you know, allowing it to manufacture goods similar to those produced by Western nations. Actual efficiency, which you all deserve. China's economy has transformed in the last 20 years, there is no doubt. China joined the WTO and it is now the second largest economy by current prices and largest by purchasing power parity. It affects the global economy significantly and the IMF projects that China will contribute 60% of global economic growth in 2020 and 2021, which it did. And the IMF predicted that China will account for 30% of global economic growth in 2025, compared to 10% of the US. But first of all, it is technically still a socialist economy, which combines the private and state sectors. This actually gives it an advantage over Western economies, which rely solely on the private sector. I'll give an example. So back in the 2000s, because China had the authority to do so, invested in nickel mining in the African countries, where nickel was technically useless, right? Because it is now used extensively in EV batteries, but back then it was technically useless. What we can see now, what we realize now is the Chinese government made these somewhat risky gambles or bets rather for the future with a long term, you know, 30 year, 20 year horizon. And it could only do that because of its very distinct advantage of it being a technically socialist economy with Chinese characteristics. And now it's paying them off. Like the very nickel example, nickel is so valuable right now that it scares. And only a few countries have it. China having its hands on most of them now. Also, China will soon be a high income economy by World Bank standards. China achieved moderate prosperity in 2020 and the World Bank's high income economy standard is slightly over $1,000 per capita GDP a month for international comparisons. China would reach this high income status by 2023 and existing high income economies have 16% of the world's population, so this will transform the economy as a whole. China's population is 18% of the world's, so China will double the number of high-income people. Diversifying the economy is difficult, and when an economy develops, people only care about having enough to eat, decent housing, and leisure time. But once an economy is high-income, the proportion spent on food and accommodation will fall. Culture and travel needs are complex, and China is the world's largest tourist economy because of its education, culture and advanced healthcare. The economy will become more complicated. And that is actually the main problem because it becomes unpredictable. Under common prosperity, the government signals private sector control. And since most bank lending is restricted to state-owned enterprises, China has cracked down on shadow banking and peer-to-peer -peer lending. 
The government has also denied the tech sector out of school education and overseas stock market listings. Startups doesn't need foreign finance unless it comes with expertise and know-how. The administration has used dual circulation to hide a desire for greater self-reliance in technology, energy, finance and education. And this will affect the global economy and UK universities dependent on Chinese students, let's say. In 1969, Dennis Bloodworth's book, Chinese Looking Glass, explained how Chinese policies derive from yin and yang. China owes yang, then soothes yin. Yang's strategy may include threatening China's private sector and scaring foreign investors. And once the economy rebalances, we may see the yin strategy. So while people have a more definitive stance on the outcome of the Chinese economy in the next 30 years, like they either go from it will dominate the world to it will amount to nothing. My stance is a bit underwhelming. What I say is it can vary significantly and it all depends on the steps the government follows. But I still think that China is not going to be the next Japan, the next Singapore, because I think China truly has the potential to be the most dominant economy in the world. And I think that is a hard fact that we must gulp down. We'll see. Anyways, before I end, I'd like to discuss something. Neo-authoritarianism is a political ideology that China and the CCP adhere to. Chinese authorities decimate approved news versions through state run point, radio, television and online outlets, and a network of party propaganda bureaus monitor and guide reporting. Officials from the propaganda department advise journalists on how to cover breaking news. They also prohibit reporting on potentially dangerous events or remarks, like in 2010, 13 independent learning street media outlets published a joint editorial criticizing and calling for the reform of official household registration system. The editor was forced to resign and the editorial was removed from websites across the country. Authorities in charge of propaganda prohibit independent reporting on significant crises. Thousands of Chinese are protesting against illegal lockdowns that deprive them of food, work and even shelter in some cases, as most factories in China serve as the workers' homes in manufacturing provinces since they sleep in the factory. And even older examples include the benzene spill in the Songwa River in 2005 and the melamine tainted milk scandal in 2008. In some cases, there are complete information blackouts. Authorities in Urangkai cut the internet, text messaging and other phone services after ethnic riots in 2009, which is also somehow a very dangerous trend that has spread to India. More about that later on in the 51st episode. Anyway, you know, after this Urunkai incident, for the next six months, international phone services in Xinjiang's west were suspended, and many uncontrollable information sources were blocked by the central government, which are still there. They disturbed BBC and VOA transmissions. They have one of the most comprehensive systems for filtering objection-level internet content. And you all know, since 2007, YouTube, Facebook, Blogspot, Twitter, Wikipedia, all have been banned. In 2010, Google announced that it would no longer comply with official request to censor search results on a search engine in mainland China, citing a sophisticated cyber attack on its own corporate infrastructure and escalating Chinese government attempts to limit free speech. Instead, Google began to redirect Google search requests to its Hong Kong search engine, which then obviously remains banned by mainland authorities. So on paper, the Chinese constitution recognizes civil rights such as freedom of association, religion and speech, equal rights for men and women, and safeguards against arbitrary deprivation of personal liberty. But due to sheer lack of enforcement mechanisms, because obviously, it's a one-party rule, and you know, official efforts to maintain party control over Chinese society, 
provisions have little practical value. How can I not mention, let's say, China's social credit system, where citizens are literally ranked and punished based on their contribution to society? Why does my government have the authority to decide who gets to stay in a hotel and who does not? Why does my government have the power to limit my internet access? Why can my government cut me out of the best schools? The Chinese government routinely persecutes peaceful dissidents. The Chinese government defines prison terms by subversive state security laws. Like Shandong riot activist Chen Guoncheng, others are escorted out of Beijing before high-profile international events or placed under house arrest with round-the-clock surveillance. Billionaires keep disappearing time and again. And all these indicate that China is authoritarian and there is no avoiding it. The thing is, China has this innate desire to appear strong to the outside world to avoid a repeat of imperial China's greatness and a century of humiliation by foreign powers. So it has come to a policy of doing anything and everything to maintain control, from implementing literal capitalist practices to keep its economy functioning, to cracking down on individual freedom to an extent where people do not even have the right to do what they want to do, visit the places where they want to visit, all disguised in an attempt to maintain power, which they call communism with Chinese characteristics. The entire economic point aside, like even the Chinese citizens are grateful about how their government has progressed and how they have lifted so many people out of poverty. And personally, I genuinely look up to that. Because that is leadership we aspire to have, especially from India. I aspire to have that kind of poverty eradication in my country, where millions can be lifted out of poverty in such a short span. But that should not come at the cost of the people. And that's the thing. China's economic development is a miracle story. But we should not overlook the fact what its citizens are having to face and how little of that we are actually subjected to from what actually comes out of China before it's censored. Forget everything. Try googling the recent Chinese leaked media protest of the lockdowns in Shanghai. You'll get my point. Anyways, that's about it for today. This was fairly long. And I just want to say that I have been meaning to do this episode for quite a while because this was heavily requested. People know I hold strong views about China and the overarching state principle and all that. But the thing is, I genuinely... I cannot believe I'm saying this, but I genuinely, as I said, respect how the Chinese economy has shaped up to be. But this whole facade and this PR campaign about how socialism achieved this, this is bullshit, right? We all know that by this point. And I think it's high time we see China as the capitalist economy that is succeeding, just as I said, at the cost of the individual rights of its citizens. And that is something trust me when I see this, will come biting them back, someday or the other. Because one thing we have as the human race is, we cannot be subdued for too long. We are too smart for that. I'll see you exactly in a week from now with a fresh new episode. Because hey, last four episodes of Cast Me If You Can is gonna be worth it, right? Keep casting and have a great Sunday. Bye. <laughs>